Pushkin. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, JPMorgan Chase & Company. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Well, I'm going to take you back to 2005, the winter, November, December of 2005. In 2005, the team was just assembled to begin writing the national plan. This is a doctor named Carter Metcher. The team he's talking about was in the Bush White House, and the national plan was for what to do in a pandemic. Back in 2005, the White House asked Carter to help answer a big question. How do you minimize disease and death between the time a new virus starts to spread and the time we might have a vaccine for it. You know, an analogy we use is fire. And thinking of the exponential growth in a fire, just like an epidemic grows exponentially, a fire grows exponentially. Slow a fire and you give yourself a chance to put it out. Slow a pathogen and you buy time to save lives because you can stock up on medical supplies, learn about the new disease and how to treat it before lots of people get sick. Carter Metcher really wasn't a political guy. He was just an ICU doctor with a reputation for thinking about problems in unusual ways. The White House had called him up totally out of the blue. And at that moment, it was not at all obvious how to slow a new virus, especially a virus that can spread through people without symptoms. Public health experts still had the year 1918 in mind. Back in 1918, different American cities had tried various ways to slow down the Spanish flu. They closed saloons and churches and banned large gatherings. None of it seemed to make any difference. Carter teamed up with another doctor brought in by the White House, an oncologist named Richard Hatchett. Together, Carter and Richard went back and looked more closely at what had actually happened back in 1918. And so what we began doing was pulling uh, daily newspaper accounts from a number of cities uh, to be able to identify when they were reporting their first cases, when interventions were being implemented. The two doctors were looking for what they called NPIs, or non-pharmaceutical interventions, the various things that cities had done to distance people. They were also looking for death tolls. Back in 1918, Philadelphia had been an outlier in this regard. People died at a greater rate in Philadelphia than in almost any American city. And as we looked at Philadelphia closer, what we realized is that they did eventually implement you know, the the NPIs trying to slow transmission, but they implemented those measures awfully late in the course of the disease outbreak. After looking at Philadelphia, the doctors moved on to other cities and found some really weird stuff. In St. Louis, for example, the death rate there was less than half of Philadelphia's. What we found was that the cities that implemented these interventions earlier 
had a lower mortality rate than the cities that implemented these measures later. And no one had done this before. I, you know, I, I don't, I, and I don't, I'm not aware of anyone doing this before. Back when I first heard about these White House doctors, I got so interested that I set out to write a whole book about them called The Premonition. I just thought the whole situation was wild. You had these two doctors, both sort of shocked to find themselves in the White House, trying to figure out how to save lives during a pandemic. Then they turn themselves into amateur historians and find things that no historian has ever really noticed. They also know that they're way out of their depth. So they recruit a proper professor, a world-class Harvard epidemiologist named Mark Lipsitch. Lipsitch, Carter Mesher, and Richard Hatchett publish a paper that will one day become famous because it shows, in a rigorous, academically respectable way, that the death rates in the United States back in 1918 had actually been very different from city to city. How many people died depended on how quickly each city had done its social distancing. The trick was to intervene before it was obvious that the disease was present. Once you see the disease killing people, it's too late. There's a lag after people get infected before they get sick and another lag between the time they get sick and the time they die. So NPIs were sort of like a fire extinguisher, less useful after the fire has reached the roof. If you're trying to put out a fire or control a fire, uh, it's much easier to do that when the fire is contained to, for example, your stove. You've got a, a pan with oil in it that starts on fire. It's much easier to contain or to suppress that fire if you act then than if you wait for the entire kitchen to be engulfed or half the house to be engulfed. By the time you know your kitchen's fully ablaze or half your house is ablaze, that fire extinguisher is not gonna be very effective. Carter Metcher and Richard Hatchett wrote the pandemic plan for the United States back in 2006. Actually, this part of the plan was officially written by the CDC, but Carter and Richard basically created it with the help of a mid-level CDC employee named Lisa Kunin. The plan stressed the importance of distancing people at the very start of the pandemic to slow a virus down. And so when a pandemic actually happened in 2020, Carter Metcher was more shocked than just about anyone that the United States ended up playing the role of Philadelphia. And all these other countries wound up playing the role of St. Louis. Because a lot of those countries had learned pandemic strategy from us. I'm Michael Lewis, and this is Against the Rules, a show that explores unfairness in American life by looking at what's happening to various characters in American life. This season has been all about experts. Mostly it's been about how it's all our fault that we don't use expertise better than we do. But this episode is a bit different. It's about how much trouble experts can cause when they exploit our desire for them to tell us what we want to hear. I don't know about you, but I feel as if I've spent the last two years living inside a casino. I've lost all sense of time. March of 2020 feels to me like about 10 years ago. Back in March of 2020, only a handful of Americans had died of COVID. But a surprising number of the early cases occurred in California's Santa Clara County. On March the 16th, that county's health officer, Sarah Cody, issued the country's first shelter-in-place order. She closed schools and banned gatherings of more than 50 people and so on. These new orders direct all individuals to shelter at their place of residence and maintain social distancing of at least six feet from any other person when outside their residence. Dr. Cody was basically just following the plan that the doctors had conceived in the Bush White House. But she found herself way out on a limb. At that moment, only two people in Santa Clara County had died and no one knew anything for sure. Not how many Americans were likely to get COVID, not how many of those were likely to die. In March, I heard about a study that was happening at Stanford where we were going to try to measure the amount of antibodies in our community. Mallory Harris was a 23-year-old first-year graduate student in biology at Stanford University, which happens to be in Santa Clara County. 
This study that Stanford was about to do was going to try to learn the most important thing to learn about COVID. Mallory jumped in to help. And this would allow us to um, figure out these important quantities about um, how the disease was spreading. You need to know how transmissible and how lethal it is. Right, exactly. The Stanford study would wind up having 17 authors. A few of the names were known in the medical research world, especially Jay Bhattacharya and John Ioannidis. Ioannidis was a really big deal. His name gave the study instant credibility. So I had, like, this tiny volunteer thing that I did. I, like, handed people their Amazon gift cards after they got tested. And at the time, like, everyone I knew was volunteering on this study, like, because it was that important, right? Like, we all wanted this information. And specifically, the information is how many people in Santa Clara County have been infected with COVID. Right. Exactly. Because if you know that, then you you know how many people have died, so you can start to guess what the fatality rate is of this disease. Right. So there's that question. There are also questions about, like, how many people who get sick are actually going to have symptoms at all and get detected as cases. You know, that number would be helpful for us in figuring out how transmissible is this virus. So you were excited. I said that this was probably one of the most important studies that I would ever be a part of. The Stanford students had gathered blood samples from 3,300 Santa Clara County residents. The Stanford professors then tested the samples for COVID antibodies. The results were sensational. Between 50 and 85 times more people in Santa Clara County than previously thought had been infected with COVID. Thousands of people had apparently survived COVID without ever knowing they had it. Yet only two had died, which suggested that the virus wasn't all that lethal. Welcome back, America. We have a tremendous guest, Dr. John Ioannidis. At that moment, it really did feel possible that anyone reacting to COVID was overreacting. Welcome. You are a co-director of the Meta Research Innovation Center at Stanford University. It's now April 19th, 2020. Dr. Ioannidis is a guest of Mark Levin, host of Life, Liberty, and Levin on Fox News. Tell me what was in your mind when you wrote this piece and tell me why you were right. I'm a person who's working with data and I'm also trained in infectious diseases. So it was uh, natural that uh, when the COVID-19 uh, pandemic uh, uh, evolved, uh, it, it became a top priority for me to understand what was going on. Unitas is wearing a white sports jacket. He has the air of a man who's descended onto TV. He's a doctor, though he doesn't see patients. He's made his name exposing the shoddiness of a lot of medical research. It became very obvious to me that uh, the evidence that we had in the early phases of the pandemic uh, was utterly unreliable. Up until now, Unitas' published work has been kind of fun, almost crowd-pleasing. He once wrote a paper where he took the first 50 ingredients in a cookbook and investigated what medical researchers had said about them. Half of the ingredients supposedly cured cancer, half of them supposedly caused cancer, and a bunch supposedly did both. I wanted to talk to him for this episode, but he didn't return our email. Anyway, in early April 2020, John Ioannidis might be the most dangerous scientist alive to any medical researcher who uses weak data to make some sensational claim. But he himself is about to make a sensational claim, that the world's experts in communicable disease have no idea what they're talking about. It is just an astronomical error. And over the last several weeks, we have started accumulating data that show that uh, there's far more people who are infected with this virus. The vast majority of them don't even re realize that they have been infected. They are asymptomatic, they have no symptoms, or they have very mild symptoms that they would not even bother to do anything about. This was such an important moment. No one could be totally certain about COVID, how many Americans would get it, or how many of those might die. But Professor John Ioannidis of Stanford University sounded certain. In the big picture, the risk is much, much, much lower compared to what we thought before. I think you and your team 
uh, have developed a growing uh, consensus, I think, among experts and certainly among the people. Take care of the vulnerable, but let the rest of us go free, that we have lives to live. No more than 10,000 Americans will ever die of COVID. That's the claim Unitas put in print. He became a regular on Fox News, a go-to expert for other media outlets. He and his co-author, Jay Bhattacharya, offered their views to the Trump White House. And the Trump White House listened to them. Scott Atlas, who ran Trump's COVID response, wound up talking to John Unitas and Jay Bhattacharya nearly every day for a year. America had a pandemic plan. Much of the rest of the world was effectively using it. But we hesitated. And here was a big reason why. This Stanford study and these important experts shouting to anyone who would listen that we didn't need a plan. Why socially distance anyone? We were looking at 10,000 American deaths, max. And just then, in mid-April 2020, that statement felt plausible. I remember talking to a scientist friend of mine about it who was also sure that this Stanford professor had proven that COVID was just way overblown and we were all way overreacting. We were both totally pissed off that our kids' schools had closed. What neither of us knew was what other people were making of the Stanford study. Here it is. Here's my original post from April 19th, 2020. Someone emailed me. Andrew Gelman's a professor at Columbia University and one of the country's leading statisticians. What I focused on in my first analysis was accounting for uncertainty in the false positive and false negative rates of the test itself. Yep. And there I concluded that their data are consistent with a a zero rate uh, in which everything is false. In plainer English, the antibody test used by the Stanford professors was unreliable. So unreliable that you could have just as easily concluded that zero people tested by Stanford had actually had COVID. Therefore, all the confirmed cases of COVID were in dead people. You could take the same study and argue that COVID was actually extremely lethal. Basically, Andrew Gelman showed that there was no useful new evidence of anything in the Stanford study. It was total garbage. I said that they owe an apology not just to us, but to Stanford. Stanford has a world-leading statistics department, and they could have easily got on the phone with these people. They They also have some great epidemiologists at Stanford. Everyone makes mistakes. I don't think they should apologize just because they screwed up. I think they need to apologize because these were avoidable screw-ups. These are the kind of screw-ups that happen if you want to leap out with an exciting finding and you don't look too carefully at what you might have done wrong. But the authors of the Stanford study didn't apologize, at least not the famous ones. They did the opposite. They just kept doing these media appearances, going on podcasts, etc., even though... Scientists were just so vehemently aghast at what they'd done. That's Stephanie Lee, science reporter at BuzzFeed. She covered the expert reaction to the Stanford study, which just got louder and louder. Was the response that you were detecting on Twitter really unusual for an academic paper? It was unusual in that it was... um, It was so heated, and it came from just so many people um, all at once. Help me understand. Is it unusual for a paper that has 17 authors to have these kind of problems? People were struck by, yes, the the big number of of co-authors on it, um, the sort of like caliber of the people on it. uh, Johnny Nittis' name, you know, being on there definitely made people take a second look. Does it not strike you as strange that this person then proceeds to produce a paper that's statistically shoddy and amplifies its message in spite of criticism about its findings? I mean, he seems like he's just done in this paper what he's accused everybody else of doing for the previous 15 years. That is the absolute nail-on-the-head tragic irony of this whole situation, is this, this person who became famous for calling out problems of scientific research is now seemingly perpetuating those very same problems um, and not realizing the disconnect between those two things. 
If I sound fixated on this one person and on this one moment in time, it's because I am. Right then, the country had the chance to agree on something important, exactly how dangerous COVID was. And the answer was about to be available, thanks in part to the work of two Australian PhD students, Leah Maroney and Gideon Meyerowitz-Katz. I saw all these people saying wildly different things about the fatality rate of COVID. That's Gideon. He and a colleague got the bright idea of taking the dozens of studies made of COVID's lethality all over the world and analyzing them together. As a group, these studies suggested that COVID's death rate was somewhere between half a percent and one percent. So, for example, if half the American population caught COVID, somewhere between 875,000 and one and a half million people would die. They released the preprint of their study May 6, 2020. We were cited by the CDC mid last year in their planning scenarios. We've been cited by the WHO and the EU, I think, as well. Lots of people looked at their work and said, yep, looks about right. And it was about right. But right away, they came under attack from this Stanford professor named John Ioannidis. Who said that our paper uh, had, I think, the precise words were it was overtly wrong and that perhaps this was because we were PhD students. Right. How common is the argument that you shouldn't listen to those people because they're still working on their PhDs? I've never heard it before, I guess. (laughs) Uh, People do PhDs at all points in their life. Sometimes they have had very long careers before their PhDs. So to say that someone is, is only a student is a bit reductive. I don't want to be reductive either, and I have found instances of Unitas being gracious online with his critics. For example, in a comment on the science blog, Absolutely Maybe, he wrote, and I quote, We need nuance and some distance to understand the strong and weak points of the science that we and our colleagues produce. This takes time, patience, and goodwill. In the meanwhile, I consider my critics to be my greatest benefactors. I am always grateful to them. End quote. Which is nice and all, but it was still weird to Gideon that Ioannidis set out and attacked PhDs in general. They are literally the leading experts in a certain thing, and they're doing their PhD to uncover new evidence in that specific thing. These important Stanford professors were clinging to the meaningless results of their screwed-up study. Instead of admitting they'd been wrong, they tried to discredit those who were right by comparing their academic degrees. You might think that these Stanford guys would right about now be laughed at by every respectable human being on the planet and slink away in shame. But you'd be wrong. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So, buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So, how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. Oracle.com slash strategic. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. 
Everyone, please welcome Coach John Calipari. We're getting beat by 18. My first game in Kentucky. They're saying cows are bust. You can't coach. This is crazy. John Wall runs down the floor and makes a buzzer beater. Yep. You remember that, John? That's my first game win I ever made. Remember you said you never seen me do that. Ladies and gentlemen, DeMarcus Boogie Cousins. I called Boogie. I'm like, yo, bro, I'm about to commit to Duke. And I hung up on him. <laughs> bro, I'm talking about, do you want to tell me how many times he called me all type of names? Bro, you really sold me out. You doing this. <laughs> <laughs> bro, I was sick. I remember that like yesterday, man. Love you, John Wall. Thanks, Coach. Love you, too. You made me everything I am today. Nah, you made me. You made me. I love it. Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. It wasn't even supposed to be my That's my, my day. Day. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's pretend it's still early April 2020, and no one's totally sure how lethal COVID will be. And for a very brief period at the start of the pandemic, that crucial moment when we needed to act, we were hobbled by arguments and doubt. But one thing was becoming clear. Lots of Americans were suddenly dying. All at once. Most obviously in New York City. You know, it was, it was kind of an eerie place. There were two people in rooms meant for one person, and they were just motionless, intubated bodies. Jonathan Howard is a neurologist and psychologist at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. But because he was a medical doctor living in New York in late April 2020, he felt he had no choice but to try to save these COVID patients. So you had a kind of a, a ringside seat to the first kind of wave of carnage. You saw how serious it was. Absolutely. I mean, it was, you know, everyone in New York did. The the sirens were wailing throughout empty streets all of the time. You know, most people didn't see it. To look at a hospital, there was nothing special going on. Uh, But the entire hospital was COVID, and the turnover was massive. I would leave, you know, at 5 or 6 in the evening. I'd come back at, you know, 7 in the morning, and half of my patients had been transferred to the ICU overnight. And Half of them, you know, were replaced. Replaced because they were dead. Had you ever seen anything like it? There was nothing like it. Every five, you know, the the, the sounds are going to stick with me as much as anything. Every five minutes, you know, code blue, airway team to this bed. Five minutes later, airway team to this bed. Inside of a month, more than 10,000 New Yorkers had died. They hadn't just caught COVID. They'd caught COVID early before doctors had a chance to learn how to treat it. Here's a shocking fact. If you went into an American hospital with severe COVID symptoms in March of 2020, you had a 25% chance of dying. Three months later, that number had fallen to 5%. In the course of three months, your chance of surviving severe COVID had gone way up because medicine had figured stuff out. But in March of 2020, medicine still needed time to figure stuff out. Jonathan Howard wasn't watching Fox News. He was watching Americans die of COVID. But if he'd had more time on his hands, he could have watched John Unitas staying on message, even though the American death toll was already twice what he'd forecasted it would ever be. The totality of the evidence points to an infection that is very common, that typically is very mild. Most people have no symptoms. They don't recognize that they have the infection. I really respected him uh, prior to the pandemic. He is a big proponent of evidence-based medicine. Jonathan Howard had once considered John Unitas something of a hero. They shared an interest in the weirdly unscientific things that doctors did and said. Jonathan had actually written a book on medical misinformation, Cognitive Era and Diagnostic Mistakes, it's called, which sounds boring, but it grew out of stuff that Jonathan saw doctors do. So there's a doctor who I trained with and knew pretty well and was very friendly with, who uh, has since gone on to infamy as one of the disinformation dozen. These are the 12 people most responsible for spreading vaccine misinformation on Facebook. This is someone you studied with? Yes, yes. We were professional colleagues and and, and friendly. And shortly after she graduated uh, our residency program together, uh, you know, again, she started posting this sort of stuff to Facebook. And I I became very fascinated after that point, as many other people are, about why smart people can believe 
such weird and wrong things because she's not stupid. She went to Cornell. She went to MIT. She went to NYU residency. She's smart. But how is it that she believes viruses don't cause disease or coffee enemas? I'm not making that up. Cure mental illness. Jonathan thought of the disinformation dozen as a type. People inside medicine who basically rejected science. Science could protect itself from them. These Stanford professors, though, they were a totally different beast. They can speak in, in great scientific jargon. And, and there's something about this, like there's something that I find, and I, I have to sort of uh, talk to my psychiatrist about this, but, but personally offensive about doctors who I feel spread misinformation. You think they've had real effect? Oh, absolutely. They are on the Wall Street Journal. They are on Fox News. They have testified in courts. They have massive platforms. Ironically, whenever anyone criticizes them, they say they have been silenced. After the first wave of deaths in New York, Johnny Unitas raised his loose forecast for American deaths from 10,000 to 40,000. But he never said he'd been wrong. And at no point did he grapple with the new evidence. When the evidence started to make him look like a fool, he just began to attack the evidence. Saying things like, people didn't die of COVID, they died with COVID. Uh, It sounds incomprehensible as these words are coming out of my mouth, but this idea that death certificates can't be trusted. Uh, And even he implied in one article that doctors have a financial incentive to put COVID on death certificates. I can remember hearing, too, that people weren't really dying of COVID. The people who were dying were going to die anyway. And that's a claim that still exists today. Most people I saw who died were older and unhealthy, but they were 60-year-olds with diabetes. 60-year-olds with diabetes, sure, it's not unheard of that they die of a heart attack, but they don't die in mass in large numbers at the same time. I saw 30-year-olds die. The youngest I personally saw die at that time was a 23-year-old. So it was very clear that something different was happening. We were at the start of an ugly new war, not just on COVID, on reality. And in this war, Dr. John Unitas acted like the general of one of the armies. He's blamed frontline doctors for killing their patients. On a podcast, he said a lot of lives were lost at the very beginning um, because of doctors not knowing how to use mechanical ventilation. Uh, yes. Just just going crazy yeah. and early intubating and, people yeah. who too early did not have to be intubated. So so probably we lost a lot of lives. If you know we were sort of too aggressive early on, so be it. Let the statistics say that. But this multiple studies have shown that that's not to be the case. So rather than sort of say, you know what, I underestimated COVID. I got it wrong. Let me try to do better from here out. He kind of threw frontline doctors under the bus. In a previous episode this season, we heard about a COVID patient whose family tried to refuse to allow him to be treated because they all knew that doctors were killing patients by intubating them. Those people didn't just pluck that bit of misinformation from some conspiracy theorists. It had the endorsement of a professor of medicine at Stanford University. He wrote this paper very ironically entitled Forecasting for COVID-19 Has Failed, um, in which he spoke about empty hospital wards, uh, that most hospital wards uh, were empty, uh, expecting a tsunami of disease that never came, uh, you know, writing as if the pandemic was over at that point, essentially. We begin tonight with that grim new milestone as the nation tries to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Total U.S. cases have now topped 5 million since this pandemic began a grueling eight months ago, in which nearly 163,000 Americans have died and our way of life has been altered. By August 2020, the picture of COVID was a lot clearer. And it obviously didn't look anything like the picture painted by the experts who claimed to know more than what we could see right under our noses. There's now this dreadful league table for COVID. It just came out in The Lancet as I was reporting this episode. Pandemic Preparedness and COVID-19. The study's authors rank countries by their ability to prevent COVID infections. In the rich country division, the United States ranks second to last, just above Argentina. In the lower weight class division, here are some of the countries that have outperformed the United States. Yemen. Saudi Arabia. 
Zimbabwe. The deaths are bad enough, but they speak to a bigger problem. I once had this realization because I was riding in a taxi to the airport and the taxi driver is listening to one of those holy roller radio stations. That's Andrew Gelman again, professor of statistics and political science at Columbia. The voice on the holy roller radio station started telling him how we're all sinners. And we have to accept that. As the disease of sin entered the human race. And it really resonated with me that we are all sinners in that sense, that, that we make mistakes. And accepting that you are a sinner, and like that's kind of the first step. And then the next step is, is that you say, like, how can I learn from my mistakes? I find it very frustrating that all levels, when people don't admit their mistakes, it just makes me want to scream. I have a hard time imagining you screaming, but I believe you. Uh, yeah, I scream. I've been known to scream. That's what's at stake, our ability to learn, so we don't wind up going through this all over again. And there's one very obvious thing that we might have learned from a pandemic that's now killed one million Americans. It's what they didn't learn back in 1918, and what Carter Mesher helped to figure out what saved people, and what killed them. Right now, the city of Miami has more than triple the death rate of San Francisco. Why? The red counties in California that followed the lead of the Stanford professors and revolted against public health rules early in the pandemic? Well, now they have double and triple the death rates of the blue counties, that more or less complied with the rules. The United States had a pandemic plan that advised city and county health officials to intervene early and distance people when a new pathogen started to move through the population. Did the cities and counties that more or less did this actually save lives? I mean, it looks to me like they did, but what do I know? The trouble is that no one seems to know. Do you think we've learned in this country how to better respond to the next one? I, I think, if anything, you know, we probably have regressed. Carter Mesher again, who created the pandemic strategy we didn't really use. That people are, haven't looked at what's happened and said, oh, that worked and that didn't, and in a sensible way that enables us to move forward more intelligently. They haven't done that. No, I, I, I you know, I, I don't think, I don't think we have. It's not just an opinion, this. There's data to support the point. For it turns out that not only did the United States do a worse job than other countries at preventing disease at the start of the pandemic, compared with other countries, we're actually doing even worse now, despite having better access to vaccines than just about everyone else. So you look from July 1st, 2021 to today, and what happened in those countries? Well, in the United States, we've seen 1,200 deaths per million. If you take a look at the UK, they're at about 600 deaths per million. They're half. The death rate in the UK during that period of time across those waves is half the death rate of the US. If we look at Canada, Canada had a death rate of about 300 deaths per million. So about a quarter of what the United States has. If we take a look at Japan, they had about 100 deaths per million over that same period of time that the United States had 1,200 deaths per million. By now, it just sounds like numbers, so let's do something to make it sound like something else. Think of one person you loved who's died. A single person. Take a moment. I'll do the same. Now multiply that feeling by hundreds of thousands. Our society is still failing its people in ways that other societies are not. And there's a reason for that failure. These other societies are learning. We're not. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. Everyone, please welcome Coach John Calipari. We're getting beat by 18. My first game in Kentucky. They're saying Cal's a bust. He can't coach. This is crazy. John Wall runs down the floor and makes a buzzer beater. Yep. You remember that, John? That's my first game win I ever made. Remember you said you never seen me do that. Ladies and gentlemen, DeMarcus Boogie Cousins. I called Boogie. I'm like, yo, bro, I'm about to commit to Duke. And I hung up on him. <laughs> Bro, I'm talking about, do you want to tell me how many times he called me all type of names? Bro, you really sold me out. You doing this. <laughs> Bro, I was sick. I remember that like yesterday, man. Love you, John Wall. Thanks, Coach. Love you, too. You made me everything I am today. Nah, you made me. You made me. I love it. Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. It wasn't even supposed to be That's my That's my dance, <laughs> Hey guys, it's Rich Davis from Covino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure ready RAV4. Available with all wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance or any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew could stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you could sit back and enjoy the wide open views with the whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter what your style, you could drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places. When you all were looking back at 1918, it seems kind of, oh, it's quaint that they didn't understand. They didn't understand what happened. And now you can come in and you can understand for them what they didn't understand at the time. And we would never do such a thing. <laughs> and we're exactly, you know, we're exactly where they were. That that we, we don't, this stuff is happening and no one's learned anything. And I just don't, you know, I can understand what their excuse was. I don't know what our excuse is. Yeah, it, it, I, I don't, I, I don't either. I don't either. I don't know. One of my takeaways from Carter Mesher and this entire season is the importance of I don't know and how it's a sign of true expertise, but how hard for an expert it is to say, especially as they age and grow used to being viewed as the person who knows. Which brings us back to Mallory Harris, who had come to Stanford as a 23-year-old graduate student. She'd arrived thinking she understood the rules of expertise. Her job, she thought, was to accumulate evidence, to ask questions of it, but to let the answers fall where they may. In March of 2020, I started to see that that's not actually how this works. <laughs> she watched her superiors, John Unitas and Jay Bhattacharya, and a handful of other Stanford scientists how they went on TV and sounded certain about things that they either could not know or were entirely wrong about. So I had it explained to me by a more senior academic that at the beginning of COVID, journalists were looking for people who would say either that this is the flu or that it's Ebola. And those were the only scientists who you would hear from, even though the majority of the scientific community was like, it's somewhere in this range and there's a lot of uncertainty here. But the people who would get platformed were the people who were making kind of the most sensational and the most certain claims. Mallory was meant to be studying biology with these guys. Now she was just studying these guys. And I read about, you know, what happened with tobacco and who were the scientists who were attacking the link between smoking and cancer? And what happened with climate change? And why, like, even though we knew for decades before I was even born that this was going to be a problem, why weren't we seeing action? And who were the scientists who were helping to delay that, right? And, like, what happened with AIDS denialism? Why did you have the small group of people who were saying that HIV doesn't cause AIDS 
who kept getting platformed even when they didn't really have solid evidence for that. Did you see any patterns? Oh, yeah. One thing that had happened a lot was scientists claiming they were experts when in fact they'd wandered pretty far from their area of genuine expertise and how hard it was for the general public to see the difference. For example, you might have made your name debunking bad medical research, but it didn't mean you had the first clue about virology or disease control. Another pattern was the way people seemingly devoted to reason became wedded to positions. That is, they didn't change their minds with the evidence. One day, Mallory looked up and saw that her Stanford professors were advising a governor to do things like keep schools from enforcing mask mandates. We're talking about Florida, now seeing record numbers of new cases. Despite that, the governor, Ron DeSantis, is fighting to ban masks in schools, and that fight is escalating very dramatically tonight. Mallory's family lived in Florida, and her own professors were now threatening their lives. She finally broke and wrote an open letter in the Stanford School newspaper, in which she called out her superiors. For the past year and a half, I have carefully followed public health recommendations and university guidelines to protect those around me, including the people mentioned here, even as they work to undo these protections for others. That's what bravery sounds like. I'm like a shy person, actually. Um, So, you know, being public is really like intimidating for me. I didn't know, like, um, if it could harm me professionally. Um, I just really felt like I needed to say something. There's a question hidden in her words. Why me? Let me take a moment here, because this is our final episode, and it echoes a lot of our previous episodes. The experts who happened to have been quickest to see just how deadly COVID was had no talent for self-promotion, They didn't go on TV like the Stanford professors. We sort of got to this problem in episode two. The Stanford professors were actually a lot like the old baseball people that Bill James talked about in episode three. They stopped thinking because they thought they knew something that they didn't. But this episode's also returned to the first episode of the series, our episode about the L6. These PhD students are the L6s of academic life. We've arrived at the point where we need them so badly that they're stepping up and putting their careers on the line to save us from ourselves. But why? Where the hell are the L1s? Why do we now require that our young PhD students be brave? What forces are you worried about being corrupted by when you get to be an old, established academic? Being a scientist isn't a glamorous job. I think that... Getting um, public attention can be really exciting to scientists and, you know, making compromises in how you communicate um, so that you can get that public attention. We all carry with us our own values, our own ways that we think that the world should work. The, The sticking point would be if those values were to impact the quality of my science and the rigor with which I approach my science. Your willingness to actually live in the world of evidence. Right. I don't have some grand point on which to end this season. Just a small one. Life eventually humbles us all. What I love about experts, the best of them anyway, is that they get to their humility early. They have to. It's part of who they are. It's necessary for what they're doing. They set out to get to the bottom of something that has no bottom. And so they're reminded constantly of what they don't know. They move through the world focused not on what they know, but on what they might find out.
Against the Rules is written and hosted by me, Michael Lewis, and produced by Catherine Girardeau and Lydia Jean Cott. Julia Barton is our editor, with additional editing by Audrey Dilling. Beth Johnson is our fact checker, and Mia Lobel executive produces. Our music is created by John Evans and Matthias Bossy of Stellwagen Stimfonette. We record our show at Berkeley Advanced Media Studios, expertly helmed by Topher Ruth. Thanks also to Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Christina Sullivan, Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Nicole Morano, Royston Preserve, Daniela Lacan, Mary Beth Smith, and Jason Gambrell. Against the Rules is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. Keep in touch. Sign up for Pushkin's newsletter at pushkin.fm or follow at Pushkin Pods. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You really want people to go away with that. It's like, start trusting people who say they don't know. That's the the main takeaway. If they don't take anything else away from the season, hopefully they'll take that away. Yeah, we're going to, there's going to be spring up in the wake of our podcast, a new cable news channel where everybody's going to serve Nobody knows anything. Everybody's answered. <laughs> yeah, you, you might be right. That'll be every show will be that. I, would I love might be to- wrong. We could get a bunch of women. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I, I'm probably wrong. I'm really not sure, right. but I mean, you yeah. might be right. Yeah, I'm probably right. wrong. I mean, I don't want to step on any yeah. toes. I can't. Yeah. yeah, followed by the, our new show, Am I an Imposter? <laughs> Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Do you have a digital mindset? Check out Season 3 of This is Digital. Season 3 of This is Digital goes behind the scenes to reveal how digital trends show up in everyday decisions and actions, including driving profitable growth in enterprise software and how the new sports fan experience can drive revenue. Featuring guests like Chris D'Agostino of Databricks and Scott Crable of Tama Bravo. Check out the latest and greatest on Season 3 of This is Digital and learn more at westmonroe.com.